It was eighth grade, history class, Coach Franks. That was our teacher. Anybody else have a football coach that also taught a class? Okay, I've spent like what felt like a lifetime in school. I mean, public school, college, and then grad school. I took almost as long for grad school as I did for like the rest of school because I just did it real slow. In a lifetime of college, some great instructors, some great professors, still to this day, on the top of the list, top two or three maybe, Coach Franks, eighth grade history class. There's a lot of reasons for that. He connected with us really well. But every day at the end of class, he would close with this phrase that stuck with me to this day, obviously. And he would say, and remember, if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. You ever heard that phrase before? There's variations of that. If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. I think that Winston Churchill might get credit for saying that first, or at least he said it the loudest. Um, But if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it, which is an interesting phrase because history doesn't actually repeat itself. Uh, You aren't doomed to repeat history because it can't. It's different people, it's different events, it's unique situations. But the principle we all get, like no matter what happens, there is some precedent in the past, we've got a lot of human history behind us, that we could probably learn from. This is what your parents meant when they said, I wouldn't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. You know why they said that? Because they too at some point had climbed a tree with a pogo stick and it didn't turn out well. And they were like, listen, listen, you want some advice? If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. And this is the goal is to say, listen, I want to educate myself based on something someone else did so that I can move forward in the future. And uh, thanks, Coach Franks. Thank you, Winston Churchill. It turns out that's actually also the point that the author of Hebrews is making in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 today. So if you've got a Bible, please open it up. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 today. If you need a Bible, feel free to look it up on your phone. No judgment on that. If you need to pop over to Facebook real quick and then close that, because pay attention. Come on. Um, but get your Bible out. We also have free Bibles that we give away every week. So over here by the door, grab one, take it home with you if you need it, take it. Or if you just want to borrow it for the service, um, you can put it back when you're done. That's fine too. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, and as I welcome you back to this study, let me just give you a little bit of a reminder as we move through this. So uh, Hebrews is in the New Testament of the Bible, so that's that last third of our Bibles, and it's almost at the very end of the New Testament. It's a longer book. Uh, It was written to the Jewish Christian community. Uh, Many people think a specific Jewish Christian community community. Uh, It's interesting to think about this. I don't know if if you've ever processed that the early Christians didn't think of themselves as a different religion. You ever processed that? They didn't think of themselves as all as a different religion. They they were Jewish. They were very Jewish. And they're like, this Jesus thing is just a continuation of our own history. And so this is a Jewish community that believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And as a result, they were very, very familiar with the Old Testament, which is their their history. It was actually their Bible at the time. The New Testament was still happening, so it didn't exist yet. And so they were very familiar with the Old Testament. So as the writer writes to them, he quotes Old Testament scripture like crazy. And he never cites his sources because he just assumes like, listen, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And he just kind of throws a reference in there. And fortunately, our English Bibles have footnotes so that if you haven't memorized most of the Old Testament, like most of us haven't, you can look at your footnote. So one of my tips I've been giving is as you read through the book of Hebrews, if you see a footnote, follow it. If it's an Old Testament passage, go look that up and read it because it'll give you a better context as to what the author is trying to say there. Um, but the main goal, the main goal of the book of Hebrews, as, re- as indicated by our title, the book of Hebrews, Revealing a Better Way, that's why it's called that, is because his main goal is to say this. We serve a God who speaks to us. He has speak to us, spoken to us in many ways and at various times all throughout history, but 
through Jesus, he is giving his greatest communication. So of all the different ways God has spoken to us, this is the better way he's communicated. This is the ultimate, this is the supreme message and the supreme messenger, Jesus, and the message of salvation that comes through Jesus that Christianity talks about. And so in each section of the book of Hebrews, if you've been reading it, I've been challenging you challenging, challenging you to read ahead. Uh, we just read chapters 3 and 4. If you want to go ahead next week to read through uh, 5 and 6, um, you can get into the next section. But we might be going through 7 as well next week. I can't remember. But just read ahead. And I've been challenging you to do this because throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is going to highlight a former messenger. So last week, for example, it was angels. And he's like, listen, the angels were one of God's messengers. And then he shows how the message of the angels was powerful, but this is how Jesus is supreme to the angels. This week, as we get into chapters three and four, we're going to look at another very important messenger from the Old Testament. In fact, possibly the, the most revered messenger of the Old Testament for Jewish people. And this is the person of... Moses. You familiar with Moses? You probably heard his name. We're going to talk a little bit about him in just a minute. But I, I want to dive into chapter 3, verse 1, and let's just read it together. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's just read the first uh, two verses. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. An apostle, that's a word that means someone that's sent with a message. So this is our messenger and our high priest. And we're going to talk more about the priesthood later in the book of Hebrews. But the high priest is basically like the, the, the most tangible way for someone to connect with God to a Jewish person. So we acknowledge him as our apostle and our high priest. Verse 2, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And we stop right there. And so let's talk about Moses for a minute, because this is the comparison the author's making today. How is Jesus greater than Moses? Moses, when you look at like the pantheon of Jewish, you know, greats in the back. I mean, there, there, there's, some, there's, some, there's some good ones. Abraham rises to the top. King David rises to the top. But there's probably no one who is more revered, actually, than Moses. Moses was the one who God used uh, to set the nation of Israel free from the, uh, the Egyptian slavery that they were in for 400 years. It was through Moses that God did all kinds of incredible miracles to prove to the nation of Israel... Incidentally, when you say the nation of Israel or Jewish or Hebrew, this is the same people group, okay? And so to prove to them, he did all these miracles to prove to them that their God is supreme and more powerful. And, and in fact, if you know the story of the 10 plagues that, Jesus, that, that Moses did uh, before the, the, the slaves were free from, from Egypt, each one of those plagues actually corresponded to a powerful Egyptian God. And so each one of those plagues says, listen, you think this God's great? Watch this. Boom. You think this God's great? Watch this. Boom. And so this is what God used Moses to do that. God used Moses to go meet with him on the top of Mount Sinai to receive the law. And in this process, Moses did something no one else had done since Adam and Eve. He kind of sees the presence of God. He's not able to see his face, but God passes by him in the most tangible way that anyone had ever experienced. When he comes down off the mountain, Moses' face is glowing because he'd been in the presence of God so much so that he wore a veil over his face because it was like, ooh, it was crazy what, what Moses had. So this, this is why he's so much revered. God used Moses to bring down the, the Ten Commandments, which becomes the foundation of like Jewish society, but even more so the rest of the law which was, this was a, a, a theocracy society, so God was who led them. And for many years, they didn't even have a king or, you know, a president or a prime minister or anything like that. They just, the law of God was it. Moses was a pretty big deal. In fact, their law was often called the law of Moses. 
It wasn't the law of God. They called it the law of Moses. They really revered Moses. And, and so the author of Hebrews is setting this up, and he's about to drop a bomb on Jewish mentality. It's not a bomb for us. It doesn't blow our minds, but it would have really been big because look at verse 3. This is the bomb. It says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Oh, I know, we're like not impressed. But these people are super impressed. What do you mean? Wow, that's incredible. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. And so he's going to go into this house analogy to kind of describe the place that Moses takes in the house and the place that Jesus takes in the house. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone. You've seen houses before, right? They don't grow out of the ground. They have to be built by someone. But God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. So the nation of Israel, the picture that's being painted here is the nation of Israel as a house. But when I say house, I don't want you to think brick and mortar and wood and metal and screws and nails. Not like a building. Think more ancient than that, okay? Think household, like a family name. Like, you know, the, the family honor, the fair family heritage, the family tree. This is a household. It's something that is very important in ancient, ancient culture. It says that God was the builder of that house. And Moses, as great as he was, was just a servant in that house. Not to disparage Moses or cut him down, no disrespect intended, but that was his role in this household. God built the house, the nation of Israel, the household of Israel. Moses was a very important servant for the mission and the goal and the function of that household. But the author wants to clarify that Jesus, though he does call himself a servant at times, Jesus actually is also a servant, Jesus is the son of the household. Think ancient, okay? To be the son of the patriarch is a big deal. You get a greater share of the inheritance. When he's gone, his kingdom is yours. And also, you get all of the authority that the Father gives to you. And so, Jesus is God who came to earth in the flesh, but a, 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 a kind of human title that is given to him is that he's the Son of God. A better way to look at that, and I, I love what it says in one passage, is that he's begotten of the Father, which means he came from the Father. He's the Son. It's, it's, it's hard to understand sometimes, but the whole idea is that, listen, Jesus' role in this whole plan that God has is huge. He is the heir to the throne. He is the Son. He is the, the supreme authority because the Father gives him that. We see that in other places. So Moses was great, but Moses was just a servant. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is greater. That's his big point. Now, I recognize that doesn't blow our mind or make us inspired to go change the world, okay? Fortunately, he gives us a lot more to go on this morning. In the second half of the verse, he says, and we are his house. Okay, just got personal. He's right into the original audience. But as I read this, I feel confident that we can apply it to ourselves. We are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. How do we be the house? Uh, in a couple of months, we're going to do a teaching series that I think I'm going to call Living Stones. It comes from one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And this is what it says. It says that you also, talking to believers, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so there's this analogy multiple times in Scripture talking about God's house is not a place, it's a people. 
And so when we get to that in that series, it's going to be big. But this is it's the exact same point that the writer of Hebrews is making here. He says, you also are that house. Moses was a servant of it, but Christ is our head. And this image of a house is being built not of bricks, but of people. And it's a really important way to understand how the kingdom of God works. It's how God has always operated. He's always used people. We are his treasured creation. We're created in his image so that we can be his image bearers to the world. So that when people see someone who is serving and loving Jesus, in a very real way, they're seeing a piece of the house. That's why it makes a difference when we take pockets of heaven with us into our community. Because we are image bearers of Christ. And that's kind of the point that's being made here. And I love that in this conversation about Jesus being the head of our house, it brings us into the narrative. Because otherwise, why would you care? Like, why would you, who cares? Moses died a long time ago. Jesus, I'm not so sure. What's going on? But God says, no, 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 I got a plan for you. I want you to be part of what I'm doing in this world. And honestly, that could be a nice little bow to put on the end of our message today. You could stop there and you can say, okay, we learned something. That was, that was good. That was good. But actually, that's not even the author's point. So let's get into what the rest of the point is. Remember, he's making this point that God is good, that he spoke to us. He built a house and that, like Moses, we can be servants in it. But in verse 7, we see the second of five warnings that are in the book of Hebrews. And this is where I want us to lean in as they come across our, our plate each week. Because the warnings are important. You remember what we started with. If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. And he starts this warning, Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 7. He says, so as the Holy Spirit says, quick side note, I love that the author of Hebrews He's about to quote from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, but he says, and, and, and most people would say, yeah, probably King David wrote that, but who does he give credit to it for, for it too? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, so it's really neat. This is another place where scripture itself says, listen, this is inspired by God. This is so, so verse seven. So as the Holy Spirit says, footnote in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declare on an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is a warning, and it's very similar to the one that Coach Franks gave us in eighth grade. If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. The problem is we might not know our past. We might not, when, when you hear that, I just quoted Psalm 95, do you, do you immediately know which story he's talking about? You might, you might, but odds are good, even if you grew up in church, you'd be like, it's something to do with, they did something, the Old Testament, something. Uh, but what he's quoting from is a direct uh, reference to a specific moment in Jewish history. Um, and so I told you we're going to talk about Moses a little bit. Let's talk about him some more so we can see our past so we're not doomed to repeat it. Back during the time of Moses, God did some amazing things to show his power to his people. Uh, the nation of Israel was delivered from Egyptian enslavement. At Moses's word, they saw that God could do some powerful things, turn water into blood to bring plagues of flies and frogs and locusts. He rained down hail. He caused the death of livestock. Like he's amazing supernatural phenomenon. And each of these, by the way, was a response to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, being dis, you know, disobedient and not taking Moses seriously. And so Moses is like, listen, if you don't listen, my God is, he's pretty upset right now and he's gonna show you his power. So over and over, 
God ends up bringing darkness and death to people in Egypt. God showed his power, but he also showed his mercy. Because he said to the nation of Israel, listen, if you will honor me and do these things that I'm asking you to do, and he gave him some things to do, all this stuff that's happening to the Egyptians, it's not going to happen to you. Some of the plagues did affect them, but as they got worse, the people of God were insulated from that. And they were actually very close to the Egyptians, geographically. God protected the Jews while he punished the Egyptians. And this was a message not only in God's power, but also in God's grace. If you will turn to me, I'm going to look out for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you from harm. But then, that wasn't even the point. The point was to get them out of Egypt. So they escaped from Egypt and the miracles were just beginning. God splits the Red Sea in half for them and the whole nation crosses in dry ground and the Egyptians are chasing them. So guess what God does? He defeats the Egyptian army without the Jewish people having to lift a finger. The power of God was evidence. And then he guides them using these big pillars of fire and, and smoke to just guides them. And like imagine, this. by the way, there was like a million Hebrews that escaped Egypt. This is a large group of people, okay? And can you just imagine, like, where are we going? I don't know. We're following the big ball of fire in the sky. That's literally what they're doing. And at the front of the pack is Moses. And God is giving Moses instruction. And so the nation of Israel saw the power of God. They saw the grace of God. And not only that, but they come to this mountain, and God shows them a plan for a nation. This is how you will stand out among the nations. This is how I will bless you. And so they celebrate, and they sing songs of praise to him. You should read them. They are nothing like the songs we sing today. There's like 10 words in the songs we sing today. This is like paragraphs of praises to God, and they're ringing tambourines, and they're excited, and God brings down the law. They build this huge, huge tent. There's this place that we talked about a couple weeks ago, this tabernacle. It's, it's a dwelling place for God to come, and they worship him, and, and they praise him, and it's amazing. How could you ever doubt God again? Well, if you know the story, it doesn't take them long, does it? before we throw stones, Jesus says some things about throwing stones. We got to look at our own lives and realize, man, God's shown up maybe in your life a lot of times. And then, but as soon as things get hard, what do we do? We whine and complain. And guess what the Israelites start doing? They go to Moses and they're like, why'd you bring us out here to die? We were better off in Egypt. Bro, you were a slave. Yeah, well, at least we ate. We're eating. Do you know that God provided them with free food every single day? All they had to do was go out and collect it in baskets. Something called manna. It's kind of like this bread stuff. Quail just came out of everywhere. And they just had plenty to eat. Eventually they're like, we're sick of quail. We're sick of manna. If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. And what we see in the nation of Israel is that they saw God's power and they saw his grace. They also decided to lean on their, their own plan. And it didn't lead them to good places. But God, God knew, God knew that he wanted to bless them. He said, listen, you have been slaves for 400 years. You know what they did for a living? A lot of them made bricks. Just made bricks. You ever seen Egypt? It's like, it's a lot of bricks. <laughs> These slaves made a lot of those bricks. He said, you know what you need? God said, you need Rest. He promised them a place. He said, I'm going to give you a land of your own. You're a nation. I'm going to give you a place. The problem is some other people live there right now. It's called the land of Canaan. The Canaanites were a people group. There's several tribes in the land of Canaan. You know, the Philistines, the Amorites, the Jebusites. There's all these different Canaanite tribes. He said, but listen, here's the thing. If, if you want it, go take it. 
I will give it to you. It turns out that the Canaanite people were kind of an evil people. They worshipped some demonic gods called Molech, who required child sacrifice, or Asherah, or Baal. These were immoral fertility gods and all kinds. Of, and God said, you know what? I was going to punish them anyway, and you need a place to stay. Here's the thing. If you just go in, I'll give it to you. That's what it says. So Moses says, all right, let's go in. We're getting back to Psalm 95. This is the moment. Moses pulls together 12 men, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, I want you to come together and I want you to create a recon party. I want you to be spies. I want you to go into the land of Canaan and I want you to look around to see what you can see. Come back to us, give us a report so that we can go take the land. And so they go and look. If you know the story, they came back with a report and after their visit to Canaan, only two of them still believed that God could give them that land. By the way, I got to give them props. Their names were Joshua and Caleb. May their names live in fame for history, right? They, they, they came back and they were like, yeah, we can have it. But the other 10 spies said, wait, you guys didn't see what we saw. The people in Canaan are huge. They're monsters. And the other two guys said, yeah, but it's beautiful. It was a lush land. They said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Doesn't that sound delightful? There's grapes the size of your head. We could live like kings there. It's going to be beautiful. God's going to give it to us. Let's go. But the other 10 said, they'll kill us. There's no way we could defend ourselves against those armies. They put it to a vote. And the nation of Israel goes with the 10 and not the two. If you grew up in Sunday school, do you remember the song? 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad and two were good. What did they see when they got to Canaan? 10 were bad and two were good. I won't sing you the whole song. It's a good one. YouTube it. This was the rebellion that the psalmist in Psalm 95 talks about and that Hebrews chapter 3 references. There's a rebellion. There's a moment at which God has just shown them his glory, shown them his power, given them a free pass into a whole land. It's yours for the taking. And they said, "Uh uh-uh, we don't trust you, God. We trust our own instinct. And God said, all right. Well, if you don't want to trust me, I'll take the promise away from you. The land was going to equal rest for you. In all these passages, when you hear about God giving them their rest, many of them are referring to the land of Canaan. That's what the word rest is referring to. And you know what? I'll let your grandkids have it. (laughs) But you guys, you can walk around in the desert for 40 years, and that's what they did. They just wandered around. It was the 40 years of wandering. and, And the whole time, they're being attacked by, you know, pirates and, and, you know, burglars and little nations that tried to take them out and they had to eat quail and, and manna for 40 years. That's the backstory. Let me read it again. Okay. This back to Hebrews three, verse seven. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declare on an oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. If you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And so he's talking to a group of Jewish people, and he's like, listen, Jesus has come and he's got a message of salvation. He's going to give you this rest. 
Look back at your own history and see what happens when we don't trust God. Verse 12 says this. So see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the very end. So this is the warning. And so like so many warnings that God gives, it comes with his specialty. Okay, God's specialty is giving you hope. He's like, listen, I've got power, but I've also got grace. So even in this thing, he's like, I'm going to give you your warning. This is a warning against uh, disobedience. Last week was a warning against falling away. You might remember my story about you know, t- missing the directions and getting lost in Virginia and all that. You remember that? This week, it's, it's a warning against disobedience. But with the warning comes this grace. If you look back at verse 13, it's like, look, don't fall away. Don't harden your hearts. But verse 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So as long as the sun is up and there is breath in your lungs, you have an opportunity to obey God as long as it is still today. It's this special magical day that God created every day called today. The moon can be up. If you're awake and alive, you have an opportunity to obey God, to end your own rebellion and to repent, which means turn your heart back to him. And you get to look back on all that God has done. You can see a lesson from the past that can inform your present and change your future. If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. But if we continue to make the same mistakes over and over, the ones that our forefathers made and the ones who lived before us, we will suffer their same consequences. But... We could learn from their actions instead. And then we can live the promise that God has for us. We're going to look ahead to verse 19 now. What was their mistake? We want to learn from our past. Anybody with me? You want to learn from the past of people? Yeah, like that's the smart way to go. The school of hard knocks is for the birds, man. Just pay attention to what your uncles and aunts did, okay? Then you can do better. So verse 19 gives us the problem. So we see they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. What is belief? I think this is a word that gets tossed around a lot. I believe you. I believe in this. I believe in that. Um, So in our vocabulary, American English speaking people, I think that belief means this. I think it means kind of a a consent to some sort of knowledge. There's some facts that exist. And those facts, they they exist. Those facts exist. Like I believe, I believe in the Mona Lisa. Do you believe in the Mona Lisa? I've seen pictures of it. I read articles about it. By the way, someone threw some cake at it the other day. You should look that up. That was a big scandal. What? He was like, it's for the planet. I'm like, I don't think it is. I think you just threw cake at the Mona Lisa instead. I believe in the Mona Lisa. Um, I've never seen it uh, myself. I, but I believe in it because there's some facts. I consent to that facts. But that doesn't really impact how I live at all. Uh, I'm not talking about the Mona Lisa very often to my friends. I have got no plans to visit the Louvre anytime soon to go see it. I don't even take cake with me to go do that. Like, but I believe in the Louvre. Okay, so that's kind of what I think we as Americans mean when we say believe. But the type of belief that the Bible talks about, I think a better word for it is faith. Okay, it's the same word in the ancient languages. Faith. The Bible talks about faith. It's more than just admitting facts. Faith is accompanied by actions things that I can do to show that I consent to these facts. And so like, for example, in James chapter two, verse 14, James writes this. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? He goes on in verse 18 and says, I'll tell you what, you show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith 
by my deeds what I do. He said, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. What's the difference between a faithful person and an unfaithful person? Compare them to a demon. Does a demon believe? Do they consent to the fact that there's evidence that God exists? Oh, you better believe they do. Read the stories about demons. They are very aware of God's, but it doesn't change how they honor him with their lives. So good for you that you have some facts, but our actions have to back it up. The Israelites saw God. They talked about his grace, his goodness. They sang amazing songs to him. They showed up and praised him. But their actions fell short. Because you know what? Talk is cheap. You can say whatever you want to say. Their actions didn't match their words. And so we have this warning. He says, do not harden your hearts the way that they did in the rebellion. And it's this point that we slide over quickly into chapter 4. We're not going to go through all of that. But the writer gives us more hope. Okay? So this is where I want to land with us today. Verse four, chapter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. The promise of God's rest still stands. Wait, do you see where there's, there's a, there's a mis- disconnect here. Do you remember what I said the rest was? What was the rest? Anybody remember? It was the land, the land of Canaan. Does that promise still stand? I mean, like, other people live there now. In fact, the, the children and grandchildren of that original generation, they got that land. They got the promise. It, it wasn't as easy as it was going to be. It took a lot longer, and it was a lot harder at the second time. Um, and then they got the land, and then they lost it again, and then they got it back. And I think they lost it again, because I think it's not theirs right now. And so, is that the promise? Is that the rest? The fact is, the rest that he was promised through Canaan was not just the land. In fact, God's rest is never about a place. That's why the church is not about a building. The rest of God is about a presence. It's the presence of God. So if you go take this land, that's where my presence will go with you. They still had his presence when they were in the wilderness. They took his presence with them everywhere they went. So there's a deeper rest. There's something else. And he's going to quote it in verse 4. This is chapter 4, verse 4. He says, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day. This is another opportunity of him not citing his sources. Somewhere, somewhere it is spoken. Somewhere someone said this. But he's actually quoting from the book of Genesis chapter 2. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. That on the seventh day God rested from all his work. So that word rest ties all the way back into the Genesis story, to the creation story. Rest was one of the primary forms of worship for a Jewish person. You might be familiar with the the Hebrew word Shabbat. You know that word? In English, we say Sabbath. Sabbath. And Christians hijacked it a long time ago, and some like 1800s Christians said that Sabbath was Sunday, and it means go to church. No, Sabbath doesn't mean go to church. Sabbath means stop. (laughs) Sabbath means rest. And so what a a faithful Jew would do is every week, a faithful Jew would observe a, a full stop day of rest. They would close their businesses. They would pause their household chores. They would invite friends over, and they would have a feast. And there would be lots of food and lots of wine, and they would just rest in the goodness of God because it's okay that our businesses are closed and we're not making money today, and our grass isn't getting mown, and our, and our cattle's not getting fed. We fed them last night. We'll feed them tomorrow. But right now, we're going to rest in God's goodness. We're going to trust in His grace. Because he's going to provide. And it was a weekly reenactment of the creation story. If you're rusty on the creation story, God woke up bright and early every day for six days. He worked hard and he created and he did business. 
And on the first day he did this, and the second day he did this, and the third day, all the way to the sixth day, he worked, he worked, he worked. On the seventh day, you know what he did? He ceased his working, and he rested. And what did he do? He just enjoyed the creation that he had made. And so that was the idea of rest to Jewish society. And should be, by the way, still to this day, something that we embody. You can't earn enough money. You can't work enough hours. You can't trust in yourself. And in doing so, you're actually unbelieving. This isn't a sermon on Sabbath, by the way. There's more to it. But he says, the promise for rest still exists. It's there for you. This is the image that the writer wants us to see as he wraps up in verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, that's that rebellious group, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So there it is again. As long as the sun is still up and there's still air in your lungs, you have a chance to be obedient to God. His power is evident, but his grace is real. And the sun doesn't have to be up. It could be the moon. It could be a new moon where there's no moon in the sky. The point is, if you're alive and breathing, you have a chance to be obedient And by being obedient, we're showing our belief because belief is about actions. What is the point? Let me just ask you a question. Are you exhausted? I saw a meme this week that said, I believe I could sleep for 47 days straight and still wake up tired. And I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm often guilty of this myself. Um, but if you're exhausted with life, I think I know why. And I'm going to step on everybody's toes right now, including myself. So just curl them up, okay? Now relax. We're about to get stomped, okay? If you are exhausted, it's a good chance it's because you're being disobedient to God. One of the things that weighs on us the most heaviest is that we carry the weight of the world. I got to fix it. I got to do it. I got to earn the money. I got to work the hours. I got to take care of the thing at the kid's school. I got to do, 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 do. Yeah, God said, look, six days, do it. But you got to trust me. And it's not just like one day a week. Every day, as long as it's still called today, you have a chance to say, God, I trust you with this. Jesus says this himself. Are you burdened? Come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. What society says is, nah, you don't have to obey God. You just got to do whatever makes you happy. That is the worst advice in the world. Follow your heart. Jesus says the heart is deceitful. (laughs) What we need to follow is God's instructions for life. We need to be obedient to him. So our sin may be pulling us away from God. Our lack of trust and belief may be pulling us away from God. And the more we do that, the more hardened our hearts get. And that is the warning. But there is hope. Because as long as it is still called today, you can decide to be obedient. If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. And the good news is you don't have to look back 5,000 years to see what the Jews did. You can probably look back to last week and say, I could do better. (laughs) 
You can probably look back to yesterday and say, I could do better. We are saved by God's grace and Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. You don't have to rely on doing good things to be in God's good grace. In fact, you can't do enough. But the reality is that you were designed to create a certain way, and from the get-go, it's about trusting God with every step, every decision. Have you made a big financial purchase recently without even considering praying about it? I've done that. And then like two years from now, you're like, man, I can't pay my bills. It's like, well, because you bought seven cars and three boats. Like, of course you can't pay your bills. You have more bills than you do income. Like, that's just math. Pause and pray about it. You're dealing with something interpersonally with someone at work. Don't just go in yelling at them. No, stop. Pause. Lord, how would you have me deal with this? Talk to someone that you trust about their faith and say, listen, can you help me navigate this? To be faithful, we have to take time with our life to put our faith into action and to trust God with the outcome. And that's where we stop today with the book of Hebrews. We're going to stop right there in the middle of chapter 4. But I want to take a minute just in this last second to to close up with a challenge. Because every week I give us a challenge. And the challenge this week is very simple. Um, I, I want to challenge us all to identify one area in your life where you're not being obedient to God. Um, don't identify your spouse's area, okay, or your kid's area. Mind your own business right now. What's one area where you are not being obedient to God? And how do you take a step of faith to do that this week? As long as it's still called today. (laughs) And there's breath in your lungs. You can do that. And God's grace is sufficient beyond that. We live in a broken world, and it's obvious But God's rest is available to anyone who's willing to be faithful to him. He doesn't take away all the hard parts, by the way. He doesn't take away all the hard parts. Um, But what he does take away, in fact, he tells us, like, life is going to be hard. Okay, go and sign up for that. Life is going to be hard. It's going to make you better. But what he does take away is the weight of it. You don't have to carry the burden of the hard parts. Let God have that. And you just wake up and trust him one day at a time. And God's promise is that we can all enter that rest that only comes by faithfully walking with him daily, obeying his commands, living in his instructions, treating others with love. And with him as the house, the head of our household, we dedicate our lives to his service. If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. But there's hope as long as it's still today. Let's pray.